Hey there, it is Friday, April 6, 2018. This is Andrew Whitaker of MIT Comparative Media Studies and Writing, recording from the lovely new recording space in MIT's Lewis Music Library. A quick plug that if you're part of the MIT community, you should definitely come check the space out. Lewis is on the first floor of Building 14. You can make reservations online even. Last night, we hosted a longtime friend of the program, Nancy Baim of Microsoft Research. You'll hear a proper intro of her and her talk in a sec, but a couple reminders of other upcoming events. Well, one isn't upcoming technically. If you happen to be listening to this on Friday the 6th of April and you're near campus, stop listening. You're dropping everything and heading to the MIT Student Center to watch our Comparative Media Studies grad students present their theses. Full details are on our website, including a link to the live stream if you can't be here in person. That's at cmsw.mit.edu. And then the big event this semester is next Friday, April 13th. Our poetry series and other MIT departments are co-hosting Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Taim the Jess. Again, full info on our website. That's all for now. Here's the intro to Nancy Bame. Oh, and with audio production credit, as it is most weeks, going to grad student Vicki Zemer. She can tell you whether that's a good idea or not later after I've left the building. Yes. <laughs> um, she promised me she had a lot of good stories and good pictures and stuff, and that this would be a wildly uh, interesting and entertaining talk. I didn't say interesting, I said entertaining. Okay. <laughs> I've been picking up on some stressed out vibes amongst the graduate yes, student body, so you'll be happy to hear that this is a talk full of a lot of stories and not a lot of deep theory. So you can kind of just mm -hmm. kick back and listen to story hour. Sounds great. Rock and roll, Thank as you. it were, yes. Okay, so let me start my things. I don't talk too long. <coughs> Hi, everybody. So, as Heather said, this is from what began many years ago in the summer of 2010 as a summer project and is now going to be out in two months as a book. I have stickers here. If you want a sticker, pick one up on your way out. Um, because I'm shameless. And what I do in this book, it's called Musicians, well, it's called Playing to the Crowd, Musicians, Audiences, and the Intimate Work of Connection. And what it's about is uh, the way that social media have changed the relationship between artists and audiences in a way that leads to an expectation of more direct, ongoing interaction. For example, MTV did a study some years ago of millennials in which they these were a couple of their key takeaways, that artists are expected to be constantly accessible, especially on social media, offering unique and intimate moments to their fans, 
and that today there's an expectation for direct interaction between fans and musicians. Millennials, you can tell me if this is true or not, crave intimate glimpses into the mundane daily activities of their favorite celebrities. True or not is, is debatable, but the fact that there's this pressure out there to have these kinds of relationships is very real. So that even people who don't want them are feeling this pressure that they're supposed to be. And if they're not being constantly accessible, offering intimate moments of their daily mundane activities, then they're somehow doing having an audience in this day and age wrong. Um, I don't actually think that they're doing it wrong, but that's a pressure that's out there in the world. So why look at music if you don't care about music? I know some of you care passionately about music. And for some of you, music is perhaps background and you wouldn't really think of it as an interesting object of study. Um, there's a great quote from the French polymath Jacques Attali, who wrote a great book called Noise. And he gave a talk at Harvard a few years ago called Music as a Predictive Social Science. And what he meant by this is that you can look throughout history and see music leading trends of cultural change. And he goes through a ton of them. But you can go back a really long way. And whenever there's cultural change, music is one of the first sites in which you see that change. So music is a really interesting lens for looking at music, which I would argue is inherently incredibly interesting, just as, say, language is an incredibly inherently interesting topic. Um, but it's also interesting because it's, it tells us where we're going or where we might be going. So in this moment, my argument is that what music gives us a lens into, and this is, I can, I'll articulate this a little bit more later, is a trend toward careers that at least seem to depend on this kind of building, a mundane, quasi-intimate relationship with your audience where maybe it feels a little more like being friends than being a star. Right? Now, of course, there's plenty of artists who are operating outside of this kind of model, uh, who are in club scenes and know all their people and whatnot. But as a general rule, if you're trying to like sell records and get on the radio and be covered in the press and that kind of a career, this is sort of what musicians are facing. And what's been interesting to me as I've, in the last several years, gone around talking about this stuff is how frequently the feedback I get is, well, you're not really talking about musicians, you're talking about teachers. You're not really talking about musicians. You're talking about politicians. And Lord knows that's been borne out recently. You're not really talking about musicians. You're talking about religious leaders. So pick any kind of person who's trying to sort of manage a market crowd, people on whom their professional identity somehow depends. And what you see in music, we can see there. Sometimes tweaked in different ways, but the same basic phenomenon. So, and I want to emphasize that these multiple modes of connection that I'm talking about through which you're supposed to be having these semi-intimate relations do include face-to-face. -face. And I'm not drawing a, there's online versus offline, or there's online and offline. These things are very, very interwoven. And I don't really think it makes much sense to separate out digital and material, online, offline. They're part and parcel of one another. And it doesn't, in this day and age, it just doesn't even make sense to me to think about uh, communication that in no way has anything to do with the internet ever in any capacity. It, it's so uh, uncommon. <laughs> um, so one question I ask in the book is, well, how did it get this way? You know, it's kind of a weird <coughs> thing to say, well, if you'd like to have a career as a musician, what you need to do is share your Monday, share pictures of your meals 
with people on a regular basis, right? That seems like kind of a bizarre piece of advice, right? Um, and it is a bizarre, I mean, on the face of it, it's absurd. Why on earth would sharing details of your mundane daily life make people want to listen to the music you make? They're completely, completely, completely different, you know? Completely different. So there's a lot of answers to this question, as you can imagine, and they have long historical backdrops, um, for example, the changing nature of work, which increasingly, um, especially since the 1970s, has required more and more management of other people's feelings and making people feel welcomed and taken care of and a shift to a service economy where uh, managing others' emotions and managing your own emotions in the service of other people's experiences have become more and more part of work. It has to do with work becoming uh, increasingly precarious and so needing to make sure that you're really well networked and have really good relationships with a lot of people so that your next gig is always possible um, even if your current one goes bad um, or you may be freelance and, and gig laboring to begin with in which case you might be <clears throat> always in need of a next employer even if you're quite content where you are at that moment. Um, there's changes in intimacy that don't have to do with work. Intimacy used to be a very uh, something that you separated out from public, at least in the United States. Um, intimacy was the refuge, the domestic refuge from public life, and in public one kept private matters private. And clearly we're in an era where that's, we're sort of in the opposite of that, where private is meant to be made public. Um, and pu private is meant to be made public in the service of something else now, in ways that it didn't used to be. So it's Private is, the intimate is made public in order to sell stuff, in order to make customers happy, in order to maintain a market, and so on. So shifts in intimacy, shifts in public behavior, expression of, of intimacy, shifts in technology, of course, massive, massive shifts in technology, and I'll talk through some of those. Um, and music. And in this, in, in this particular story, music. And music, um, Music is something that doesn't really change in a lot of ways. All these other things change around it, but music is kind of always there and always serves some really fundamental human capacities like the need for connection, among others. Um, so the piece of the story that I want to focus on today, I'll talk a bit about music, but the piece that I want to really spend time on is talking about uh, this period in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and then into the 2000s, but especially those three decades, where I want to argue that the audiences set the terms for how the internet was going to work, and that by the time people like musicians, um, and of course I'm generalizing here, showed up and said, oh, this is a way we can market our wares and we can, we can interact directly with our audiences and we can sell our products and we can generate word of mouth advertising through online communities. Uh, the fans had been doing that for a really long time already. So the artists were following the fans rather than vice versa. And I'm going to give you uh, some examples of that. Um, So, let's talk about music for a minute. 
one thing that has kind of always amazed me since I've gotten into doing this work is I'll go to like a music industry event and I'll say, you know, one of music's basic functions is to express ourselves spiritually and to connect with our deities. And the audience will like give me a standing ovation in that moment because I'm the only person in the last three days who hasn't been talking about money. <laughs> like literally, right? It's so fundamental in many people's who work in music. And I don't want to say that people who work in music don't understand its deep social value because they absolutely do. Um, but when you're working in industry, you see it through an industry lens and, and the money is, is always there. Um, so one thing that I tried to sort of figure out was, well, when did that even happen, that music turned into a job that you do for a living and you expect to be able to get paid for making music? Because certainly it wasn't that way 40,000 years before Christ when some people somewhere in Germany carved out some bones and made them into flutes, right? I really doubt that somebody was like, hey, I've got a great startup. I'm going to be doing bone flutes. Want to invest? Right? Um, this is a super amazing technology. You know, it's as old as the, the drawings in the caves. We don't hear about it anywhere near as much. It, if we're thinking about the history of communication technologies as, and communication media, this is, you know, 40-some thousand years old. It has a fixed pitch, so it actually is a scale that's still in use in many places in the world. The finger holes are beveled to fit fingers right. Um, it had a, a mouthpiece that was affixed with adhesive. So, you know, pretty advanced technology for, uh, for our, our humble peoples. So if we look at the history of music, the long, 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 tens of thousands of years history of music, what you see is that you don't find cultures that don't have music. You find people who aren't into it, but you don't find cultures where there is no music, right? Just as you don't find cultures that have no language at all. Um, and in every culture where you find music, if you look sometimes now at its present, but always at its past, what you find is that music was something people did together within their social groups. And that doesn't mean everybody could do the same thing, but it means that it was a community ritual. Um, it might be pleasure, but often it was um, involved in worship in significantly meaningful cultural social rituals with one another. Funerals, births, life passages, all of those fun things that anthropologists like to talk about. Um, and then at some point, uh, we, have, we have people like, you know, these guys are coming back from the hunt. Maybe one of those guys was sort of, maybe they were employed by the pharaoh to be out shopping and, I mean, playing music. Maybe. We don't really know. I tried. I haven't been able to find out. But then at some point, it becomes very clear that some people become musicians rather than being um, members of the community who happen to be holding the instrument and playing it at that moment. But it could be you the next moment. Um, and so musicologists often locate this in the 11th and 12th centuries when music notation gets invented in the West. There are other notation systems that were invented in other parts of the world in earlier times. Um, but musicologists don't know that there's a non-Western world. Um, 
what's really important about musical notation, again, a communication medium that we don't often think of as a communication medium, is that it takes an ephemeral experience that cannot be captured, that requires humans there performing it, and it fixes it in a permanent state that can not only be transmitted so that it becomes, so that the song becomes separate from the performance for the first time, but it also allows you to sign a name and take credit as the person to whom that idea belongs. And it takes a few centuries beyond for that to really catch on, the idea that songs are things that come from the minds of individuals or the collective of groups rather than things that God delivers or these are the songs of my people or this is my family's song. Um, so that idea of there's a musician who writes a song is an invention pretty late in the history of music. A few centuries later, uh, in the early 1600s, you get ticket sales. You get the first, um, the first moments where audiences pay for access to see a musical performance. You had before that patrons who kept musicians, much as they would keep gardeners or chefs, and the musicians would come up with sonatas to be performed during the dinner, or you know, people like Mozart were being commissioned. You know, hey, I'm throwing a party next week. I need a, I need a concerto. Can you come up with something? Um, and I better like it or you're fired. You're pleasing one master, and the guests were guests of that patron. Um, once you get concerts and ticket sales, you're pleasing a public who can choose as individuals or as groups to buy or not to buy. So there's a little bit of a shift there in the relationship again, where now not only is the musician separate, but the musician is a person at work performing for an audience who is paying and very much at leisure. So a few centuries after that, in the mid-1800s, we get to beautiful Jenny Lind, the Swedish songbird. So Jenny Lind was a Swedish soprano. And in the mid-1800s, she met up with P.T. Barnum, the founder of modern public relations and publicity. And he said, oh, do I see star potential in you? Barnum was famous, if you don't know, for things like um, doing a great museum exhibit with signs everywhere that said, this way to the egress. And everyone was like, ooh, what's an egress? And so they followed it. And the egress is the exit. So everybody left the building. And they're like, shit, now I have to pay to get back in. Um, created a big buzz. So he decided Jenny Lind, was, he was going to market her. And he was very successful. So this is an etching of uh, Jenny is here. She's waving goodbye to the adoring crowds as she set sail from Liverpool to New York City to perform in America. And she tours the United States for two years. Um, there's reports of perfectly dignified businessmen running through the streets of Boston screaming about Jenny Lind. There was no escape. Jenny Lind mania was everywhere. Um, and one of the things that Barnum did and introduced to this idea of the musician as celebrity was he monetized it. So you could buy Jenny Lynn dolls. You can still get them on eBay. You'll notice they don't bear much of a resemblance to one another, let alone to her. But you could get Jenny Lynn dolls. You could get Jenny Lynn furniture. If you go to the store, even today, you can buy Jenny Lynn style furniture. I have a Jenny Lynn bed. It was the cheapest antique bed you could buy because they were so plentiful Jenny Lind beds. There's Jenny Lind diaper tables, Jenny Lind, you name it. You could get Jenny Lind every, handkerchiefs. I don't think they had t-shirts. Um, so this is all before recording technology. 
you have this beginning of the idea of the distant celebrity that the throngs adore. And you buy stuff to sh manifest your excess emotional attachment to, to your celebrity. And then comes recording. And so with recording, um, it's funny because Thomas Edison always gets the credit for the phonograph, you know, and he, record, not, and he recorded, Mary had a little lamb on his wax cylinder and recording was born. But Edison said that he had no intention of ever selling records based on the personality of the person who recorded. Who would care about that, right? Um, Mr. Victor, on the other hand, um, saw the, the potential here. And one of the people that he signed up was Enrico Caruso, who released hundreds, literally hundreds of albums uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And a lot of things happened in this time, right? Because if you think about it, um, prior to this, if you lived, well, let's say if you lived in a town where you were going to go see a movie, there would be a live orchestra that performed the music that went with the movie. Um, if you wanted to hear an opera, and you didn't have an opera house, you went to the next town, or you put up with whoever nearby had pretenses to sing opera. Right? Suddenly, you can go, if you're middle class, and you can afford a phonograph, and you can listen to one of the best opera singers of all time in your home whenever you want. So on the one hand, for fans, this is kind of awesome, right? But on the other hand, it means that a lot of us, and this is a point a lot of ethnomusicologists have made, it's also the advent of people going, oh, well, I don't really know how to sing. I'm not really very good. And the rest of us get really ashamed of singing and embarrassed to perform music publicly because we have all of these models of really, really stellar performances. And we know that we're no Enrico Caruso. So we're just going to keep our mouths shut and let him sing. Right? Um, so you have the invention of the amateur and the expert. You have the professionalization. You have the centralization where to produce these and distribute and advertise and market these things is very, very capital intensive. So you, instead of every town having their own people, suddenly there's very few people in very large metropolitan areas and it's getting distributed outwards from there. So you have centralization, experts, amateurs, professionalization. You also have unionization of American musicians in the late 1800s, uh, furthering the expert-amateur divide. Uh, you start getting music sold with photographs of the artist. So it might be Life magazine has a spread of Caruso at home, or it might be um, that their picture is on the sheet music, right? But you start using this, oh, you might have feelings about this person making the music uh, to sell. So by the time we get to the era in which all of us were born, it was kind of taken for granted that there's people who are musicians. There's people who are audiences. Musicians perform. They do it on a stage. We pay to go see them do it. They make a living doing it. Um, it's super ritualized. And the performers get to talk. And the rest of us sit there and be quiet or maybe take a picture with our phone. Right, so we have this naturalization of distance, this separation of roles between artists and audiences. Uh, this asymmetry of power, where the musicians are powerful and the audiences are not. Um, and we have discontinuity, right? You only encounter these artists when they put out an album or when they go on tour. Um, and for the artists, they only encounter their audiences when they're performing. 
and otherwise, or maybe they might get a letter, but there's long periods in between. Whereas if you were the person who was playing in the movie theater, you'd be with your audience all the time. Right? So what happens to music fans in these centralized times? The story that um, often is told is this story of disempowerment, that poor audiences became unable to perform. They were incapacitated by this. They lost access to the means of production. Um, and then, of course, the mass calm effects version of that is we all became passive dupes and were inoculated into mass media ideologies because we saw a TV show one day. Um, and if we think about traditions from the media industries of measuring audiences, they thought about audiences at this time as either a count of the whole or as atomized units, right? Each of whom were a hatch mark in that count of the whole. Um, rather than, say, a community of people with relationships to one another. Um, but of course, that's what audiences did. Right? Think about those fans standing there waiting for Jenny Lynn's boat to leave. It's not like they were all strangers to one another who happened to magically materialize on the dock at the same moment. What a coincidence. Right? They had word of mouth. They, they knew. Right? They were like, are you going to go see Jenny? I'm going to go see Jenny. Maybe we'll get to see Jenny. Let's go. Does your sister want to come? Yeah, she wants to bring her friend. OK, let's go. Right? And they were probably like talking about Jenny the whole way. And did you see her do this? And did you see her do that? And I got a doll. And ooh, which one? You know, so, all these things we think about fandom now, I can't believe they weren't happening on those docks almost 200 years ago. Um, and it certainly persisted in the time of mass media. So this is fans of a Norwegian band called Turbo Negro. Any Turbo Negro fans here tonight? OK. Um, they're very entertaining. Um, so Turbo Negro fans are really, 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 really into it, as you can see. This is them during their annual gathering in um, Hamburg, Germany. They're based, the fans are based in Germany, although the band is based in Norway. You can see that they're dressed alike. They're all wearing the jacket that identifies them as members of this fan club. There's very strict rules around this jacket. It has the uh, local chapter name embroidered on the back if you pay the extra $35. Um, Anybody can start a local chapter, but once there is a local chapter, the local chapter has to authorize the sale to you. Not just anybody can get one. Um, and there's super strict rules about um, you're not allowed to wash it. If you vomit on it, you're supposed to like maybe swim in a river. And if that doesn't work, you're allowed to use Febreze. Uh, and they have a nice link to the Febreze website <coughs> on their fan page in case you need to find some. Um, you're never allowed to wear a jacket from another chapter. But it's great if you get pins from other chapters, because that shows that you're connected to the international community. So there's all kinds. And that's just a tiny subsection of all of the things that bind this group together. They also have a lot of moral um, commitments. So their name as a fan group, I, Turbo Negro are a very, very irreverent band. They have um, songs with names like Hot for Nietzsche and um, a lot of obscene patently absurd, obscene song titles, so they'll never get radio play. Um, and the fans call themselves Turbo Jugend, which is, of course, a riff on Hitler Youth. It's the Turbo Youth, and they're in Germany. So one might think, oh, that sounds a little fascist, right? Um, and their website goes into great detail about wearing this jacket brings with it a great responsibility to treat one another properly. We will not tolerate any fascism in our group. 
right? So they lay out these really clear rules of conduct for how you treat one another. And, and don't think that just because we're making Hitler jokes, we're fascists. Not the case. Um, so fans during this time, and we're talking pre-internet here. Turbo Union are post-internet, but fan communities were pre-internet. Um, Fans are doing all kinds of creative stuff, right? They're making fanzines. They're making videos. Uh, television fans are making music videos. Um, interestingly, if you don't know this, um, fan videos. Television fandom was the, and fan video making in particular was a moment where women got to really get into fandom and rested away from all those techie science fiction guys and, and um, uh, Sherlock Holmes fans who were kind of hogging all the good fandoms and girls got to be like, hey, I'm making a video. And they were really good at it. So there you go. This was the famous first ones, Leonard Nimoy doing both sides now. Um, and fans did a lot of tape trading. I was very into REM at an earlier stage of my life. I still have a very soft spot for them. This was an example of a fan exchanged tape and what I put it up here to show is not just that fans were exchanging tapes and collating materials, but that we were going to great lengths to you know, make them aesthetically interesting. This is the uh, tape trading list that I would send out to people. So there were networks, tape trading networks, and you would get the name of somebody who had shows that you didn't, and you would send them your list, and they would send you back their list, and then you would exchange cassettes, and they would send you recordings with that music on them. So I built up a pretty awesome collection, and I was really very popular with all my friends because I had it. Um, and I listened to it a lot. You know, There's nothing for a true fan like having 18 versions of the same song performed live, each where they sing that one part just a tiny bit different. Oh, it's so good. Um, of course, these tape trading networks didn't come out of nowhere. They weren't totally. They, they were very fan-driven, but they were also always um, not always, but there were often musicians who were nurturing it, right? And the Grateful Dead are really critical to this story in many ways because, of course, the Grateful Dead were very strategic in encouraging taping of their shows and encouraging fans to trade. And they also did this very clever early thing, which is they set up their own ticketing agency, which meant that if you wanted to buy tickets to a Grateful Dead show, you did it through them. And that meant that if somebody was buying tickets to five shows, they could put them next to the other people who were buying tickets for those same five shows. So they were strategically seeding people together to form community and encouraging them to trade tapes amongst themselves. Um, very visionary in that regard. And we'll return to the dead in a minute because they become important in ways that I did not anticipate. So what's really important about all of this fandom by the time the internet comes along is that they've got all kinds of rituals for interactions. They've all got all kinds of hierarchies worked out for what makes a good fan, what makes a bad fan, what makes a famous fan, what makes a really well-placed fan. Um, they've got all kinds of structures, like tape trees, that they've built to engage one another. Um, and they have an expectation that fans are there. They can go to the fans, and the fans, the fans will be around. Um, and they know to use media. They know how to use media to produce their own materials. And all that has happened before the internet comes along. So if we stop for a minute and we say, OK, well, suppose I'm going to pick up the paper and I'm going to read about who were the really brilliant musicians who got into this early and figured it all out, figured out the internet early. Uh, one person that you often hear about 
is David Bowie with his Bowie Net. And indeed, Bowie Net was really awesome. I mean, among other things, Bowie Net does have the interactive remix project. This is 1998, right? So you could actually, Bowie was an ISP. You could have a Bowie Net account, and you could access your internet through Bowie Net, and also through your subscription get all kinds of great Bowie products delivered right to you. And you could play with Bowie stuff. So he was honoring the creativity of audiences. Another really famous early innovator, Prince, gets a lot of credit. And Prince, um, I will say that Prince was also in the early 80s, he was actually dialing into bulletin boards where people were talking about him. So he actually was getting in there with the fans really, really early in, in the fan spaces. This is 97, 98. Uh, he releases his album, Crystal Ball, the four CD set, fifth CD, if you order early enough, available exclusively on the internet. Um, hours of unreleased music from one of the most prolific songwriters of all time, 30 plus purple jams from Prince and a collectible see-through see see CD case that stands on its own from fat funk to beautiful ballads. It's all here and it's all good. Right? Place your order here or by calling 1-800-NEW-FUNK. Uh, which tells you something. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Right? The fact that he's got the phone number in there tells you something about the internet of that era. Um, one of my very favorite early innovation examples of all time is the Rolling Stones broadcast a concert live on the internet in 1994 for 20 minutes. Um, so they're really clever. They're using the M bone. They're really modern. What they didn't realize about the M-Bone is that once you've opened an M-Bone channel, anybody can use that M-Bone channel. Um, and there was a band who worked at Xerox Park. <laughs> you can see where this is going, right? So as they say here, who was the first live band in cyberspace in a well-publicized broadcast to promote their pay-per-view broadcast? The Rolling Stones broadcast 20 minutes. Whoops, sorry. Um, from a performance at the Cotton Bowl, becoming the first major rock band to do so on that network of millions of computers. But their moment in the limelight was tarnished by a little-known band called Severe Tire Damage. Knowing that the channel carrying the Stones was open to anyone and wanting to take advantage of the worldwide audience the Stones would attract, the group broadcast an impromptu performance from the Xerox Park offices in Palo Alto, direct, Palo Alto directly before and after the Stones concert. Um, I think this is the great, truly great example of computer geeks disrupting the music industry. Uh, it was actually the parking garage, I'm told. Um, and it's also an example of how, from the very beginning when musicians showed up and were like, okay, we're going to use this new medium, other people were like, oh, we know how to do it better. And actually, we're setting the rules here. So what actually happened was not that people like Prince and the Rolling Stones and David Bowie were the leaders of the internet. The audience was the leaders of the internet. And they did this through all kinds of things. As, compute, as network computing emerged, they did it through community computing. I'll, talk, oops, I'll give you an example. They did it through research labs, mailing lists, bulletin boards, Usenet news groups, fan websites, blogs, archives, blah, 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 on and on and on and on, all before MySpace or Facebook or any of those things came into existence. Uh, so this is, sometimes you're doing historical research and you just are like, wow, I couldn't have written a better thing. I'm not even going to get away with this. This is too good. So this is from 1973 in, Sanford, or in, in, in the Bay Area. And it's, it's a project called Community Memory. And what they did was they created these computer terminals and they left them in public places in the Bay Area 
and people could go and they could leave notes on the bulletin boards and they could read the notes on the bulletin boards and there would be sort of printouts of what had come up through recently for people who didn't want to actually use the machine. They could just flip through the stuff. Um, the very first one, the very first community memory machine was installed at Leopold's record store in Berkeley, California. Right? So they put the music, the record store at the center of that community that they were seeking to remember. Um, also in the early 70s, uh, at the University of Illinois, there was a project called Plato that developed these lovely little machines, uh, which were sent around the United States to other uh, places that were developing network computing. I had Plato, I grew up in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and we had Plato terminals <coughs> in my classroom in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And I remember staying after school and talking to people in Texas from Illinois uh, in like 1974. Who knew I would become an internet researcher? Um, so there were a lot of discussion forums that were available on uh, Plato, and of course, one of them was to discuss music. It was not the only one, but again, from this very early beginning, music is there. You wouldn't build a computer system that didn't have music. And then we had Stanford in the Bay Area. Um, the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab, which was established in around, around 1970, so they, um, among the many geniuses they employed were, of course, some deadheads. It was San Francisco. It was 1970. You had to be a deadhead or they kicked you out. Um, so at a time when computing looked like this in the lab, there were people who were sitting there and using these machines to digitize all the Grateful Dead lyrics. And of course, they eventually run into John Perry Barlow, Grateful Dead lyricist, among other attributes. And they hand him this stack of look, we've digitized all your lyrics. And he's like, oh, maybe there's something to these computers. Huh, this is very interesting. Right? And of course, he goes on to become one of the founding figures in um, the history of the internet, um, co-creator of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and, and many, many, many other things in addition to writing songs for the Grateful Dead. Um, so you had mailing lists, you had Grateful Dead fan mailing lists, and a lot, often internal to these labs or campuses. Um, you had Usenet news groups. This is a visualization of the rec music hierarchy of Usenet. Uh, and you can see that fish tickets was a very popular topic. Um, this was the REM discussion, so that was pretty big. Filk, the fandom thing was there, not quite as popular. Springsteen was super popular. Kiss had a lot of discussion going on. And of course, the dead. Um, so there's, let me tell you one other story about this with REM here, which is that, so there was an REM mailing list. And before, there was an REM mailing list, and it had a lot of people on it. And then it got a little too big and a little too unwieldy, and it stopped feeling intimate. So they said, let's become a Usenet news group. So they, got a new, they created a news group, this one. And then what happened was that all of a sudden, all anybody wanted to talk about it was all people who didn't know anything about REM and had never been involved with the group dropping by going, is Michael's type gay? And they would say, this is not an appropriate topic to discuss in this forum. Please do not raise this topic again. And after about you know, 80 or 90 repetitions of that interaction, 
Um, the people who had been on that original list were like, let's create a secret mailing list. And they went back and created a secret mailing list, which never did as well as the original mailing list. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, we, bulletin boards continue to develop, the most famous of which was known as The Well. Um, one of the most popular personalities on The Well was our friend John Perry Barlow. Um, and when we think about The Well, if we think about it at all, we tend to think about it as sort of this birth of Bay Area cyber culture, connections to the whole Earth catalog, to that whole kind of movement that Fred Turner has written about so well. Um, there's another story to be told about the well, and if you look in Rheingold's book, you find it, which is that the deadheads didn't have a place. And so they found the well. And for many, for quite a while, they were the single largest source of income. So basically, the deadheads were subsidizing all of that cool subculture so that they had a place to be deadheads between gigs. And as he says, those deadheads who did leave the deadhead discussion forum ended up having a strong influence at the well at large. But very different kinds of communities began to grow in other parts of the technological social petri dish that the deadheads were keeping in business. All right, so if you think about these interwoven histories already, you've got the dead kind of at the center of all of these people who are really innovating in cyberculture. And it's not just the band, it's the fans, right? The fans using computers, the fans who are making computing, who are building these systems from the ground up, figuring out things that are then turning on the dead, who are going, ooh, that's exciting. Let's get more involved with that. Also around this time, well, actually later, uh, you have America Online. The internet and the AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy had not yet uh, become interconnected. It took until 1994 that that gateway opened up. So if you were a person who did not work in the military or in the government or at a university or you were not a university student and you wanted to use the internet, you had to buy a home subscription to something like America Online. America Online, like Usenet, had a big system of folders where there were fan groups discussing whatever it was that they were fans of, including, of course, a lot of, of music groups. So when we get to the World Wide Web, all that was textual internet, right? All that's before we even had a visual, ooey-gooey, HTML-based internet. When we get to, so before, before we get to the web, you know, Prince calls up a BBS, but that's about it for like being super innovative for musicians releasing audiences, reaching audiences. We're 94, fans have totally got the domain conquered, to use a militaristic metaphor. Um, and of course, the web gets famous for 1999, Napster shows up and undermines the distribution models, shall we say, of the music industry. Um, Ian Condry did a really nice piece about the circulation of uh, Japanese hip hop where he argues that in fan culture, if you have music you like and you don't share it, you're being immoral. Right? You're, you're, you're violating the norms of the community. I heard a really great song, but I'm not going you know, to play it for you. you know, that's a really bad human who wouldn't play a really good song for you that they liked. Um, so in that sense, Napster, it's a technological innovation, obviously one created by audiences. Um, and it 
was one that tapped into the morality that already existed within audience communities. It blew it wide open in a way that it couldn't have before, but it was a morality that was already there. It was directly the tape trading tree made instant massive democratizing the tape tree. Um, by 2004, it's the Pirate Bay. Um, the Wayback Machine is so great. If you don't know about the Wayback Machine, so much of the old internet is there. Um, what was happening to our friends REM? Well, REM hadn't gotten around to building a website, but the 16-year-old guy named Ethan Kaplan, he had. Um, he made Murmurs.com, which was judged cool by Yahoo. <laughs> um, REM didn't have a site yet. And what I want to point out about this site, um, do I want to punch this? Yes, what I want to point out about this site, in contrast to that Bowie site or Prince's, is you can join the REM discussion. It's on the web, baby. Right? So the fan sites that were getting built were providing forums for fans to hang out with each other, to talk to each other, to be there for each other every day, sharing mundane daily activities continuously over time, ever accessible. Um, the interesting follow-up to this is that at some point REM's record label Warner Brothers noticed that this site was way better than the official REM site, and so they hired Ethan Kaplan, who was no longer 16 by then, and um, put him in charge of web presence for all of Warner Brothers music. So once again, you've got the fans, boom, I'm now in the middle of industry telling you how it's going to work. Um, he's still really tight with them. This was an a example of um, one of the things that fans did a tremendous amount of on the internet, which was building information repositories. I got into this Norwegian band called Madrigada, uh, who had a lot of bootlegs circulating out there on the Pirate Bay and whatnot, uh, which they didn't mind because they were influenced by the dead in that regard, though not musically. Um, this is one page from that where they went through and they had done a, a concert chronology of every single concert they had ever played, uh, the set list, if there was a record of it, whether there was a known recording of it, and if so, what quality that recording was. That was super helpful because I actually found recordings of every single concert known to be recorded, and I have a really good Madrigada bootleg collection. Um, fans built archives. This is an archive. This is all stuff from the late 2000 Audis. This is an archive of uh, Swedish independent bands. Every single one of these is a different band that this guy's put together. And if you click on any one of them, you get uh, a biography of them and links to any MP3s that might be available out there on the internet. So I asked this guy, I said, do you ever feel like you're you know, like doing a lot of work that maybe you ought to get paid for? He goes, oh, are you kidding? The artists are the ones doing the work. I'm just a fan. <coughs> You've got wikis getting written all over the internet where fans are creating the biographies for all of these artists. And now, of course, if you go and you go to any search engine and you put in a band's name, the first thing you'll get, if not their official page, is the, is the wiki page, which is going to be authored probably by uh, fans. Uh, you had MP3 blogs. So these are both examples of blogs, one based in Chicago, one based in Paris, both of which were into Swedish indie music and were serving basically as cultural ambassadors, shipping this stuff out of Sweden to international audiences with daily updates of songs that you might like. 
Um, you had things like It's a Trap, which was a Scandinavian music news site, which was became the news site that everybody in Scandinavia used to keep up with music if they were into music, including the people in the music industry and the musicians. This was run by a, a computer systems engineer who works from home in Olympia, Washington. Um, and you can see that I've actually contributed the MP3 of the day in this particular screenshot. I had forgotten about that, so I was like, wait, I wrote that. Go figure. Um, that's my name. Uh, so all of those are examples of fans collecting information, making information available, collating information, serving as librarians, basically. Um, information that artists were often not providing. Uh, fans also do a tremendous amount of interpreting. This is just an example of a lyrics website where you can go and see what people think any particular song means. Um, fans did a lot of creative practices on the web, fan art of various kinds. This is a silly little piece of fan art about Franz Ferdinand, the band. Um, fans write fiction, of course, and can share that with each other. Uh, they perform their own versions of songs, and they perform their own songs. They make their own music videos. Sometimes the music videos fans make are more popular than the ones that the artists make. Um, as I mentioned, Turbo Negger are a bit irreverent. So what I want you to take from, from the things that I've talked about thus far, I want you to take that it's not just that the internet empowered audiences, although it did that, it's that all those things that audiences got through the internet, that they built. The audiences made those things. It's not like people sat there and provided them to them. They created them. So the ability to speak, the ability to participate, to organize into groups, the infrastructures that were built for groups, the ability to distribute materials to one another, to create new materials and share them with one another, to take existing materials and rework them. All of those were things that the fans on the internet, and not just music fans, but fans in general, audiences in general, actually created. And I don't mean to say that every single systems engineer who ever sat down or every, any single internet architect who ever sat down and did it was like, how can we serve music fans? But what I do mean to suggest is that amongst all of those people, there were a lot of music fans, and they were building things that were going to work for them. And there were people who were looking at things that they were on going, huh, it sure looks like a lot of people are doing this kind of thing. Maybe we better create a way for them to do that kind of thing on the thing we're building now. All right, so that influence extended far beyond. Um, so in closing, I want to give you a couple of examples of uh, early innovators of musicians who I think ought to be the ones who we herald. I, you know, Bowie and Prince, it's kind of hard to argue with Bowie and Prince. They kind of earned their stripes. But there are some other people who I think actually ought to get a lot more attention than they do. And the reason is that these are people who, for one thing, are still doing it in the same way. Uh, there's, a, there's a line of continuity, and what they're doing is they're following the fans. And they're doing... They're, they're saying, ooh, the fans are doing this. How can we help the fans do this in ways that also allow us to have sustainable careers? So my first favorite example of this, less famous, my first less famous but more innovative and early innovator is the band Marillion, depicted here in a beautiful piece of fan art. Um, so Mark Kelly, the keyboard player for this British proggy band, 
uh, is backstage in 1991. And some guy, much like the Barlow story, some guy comes up to him with a pile of papers and says, it's a printout from the Marillion fan mailing list. And Mark Kelly's like, whoa, I had no idea. So he goes home and he cranks up his modem and he logs onto the mailing list and he lurks on the mailing list for like two years. He just reads it and he never outs himself. And then as he says, and then somebody said something that was just so wrong. I had to tell him I was there. And as soon as he told him he was there, this is about 1993 or so, as soon as he outs himself, they say, how come you never tour North America? Because if you think about the demographics of the internet at that time, it was predominantly North American, although there were people in England and, and Europe um, and other parts of the world. Uh, so Marillion, British band, had never toured North America. And suddenly, they've got this fan list full of North Americans, predominantly North Americans, wanting to know why they don't ever tour. So Mark Kelly says, well, you know, for us to tour North America, the record label would have to put up $40,000. And the record label's not going to put up $40,000. I don't think we have an audience in America. And the fans say, well, how about if we raise the money? This is, remember, 1994. And he says, well, you know, I mean, we're not going to touch the money, but if you guys want to gather it, sure, we'll tour, whatever. Um, a few months later, they had raised $60,000, and Mark Kelly had to tell the rest of the band that he had promised they were going to tour America. <laughs> and in 1996, they did tour America on this fan-funded tour, and all those people who had put up equity also bought tickets. Right, so that was on top of getting a ticket. Um, and what they found when they went from town to town was that every town's newspaper wrote a story about this wacky thing that had happened where the audience paid to fund the concert. So they kind of discovered, as he told me, the power of the internet and how rabid fans can change things and make things happen. And they continued to work that. So Sometime later, they realized that they sort of did the math on their record label contract with EMI, and they realized that they would have to make an album a year to break even or to you know, sustain their current lifestyle, and they were never going to be marketed to a larger audience. So they were kind of on a treadmill that they couldn't really get out of. So Mark says, hey, remember that time that the audience said they would fund our tour? Maybe they'd fund our album. And so they had a pre-purchase with a raffle that they used to pay for the album. And it was really, really successful. Uh, and so they kept doing it. This is from a screenshot from 2003 where they, album 13, we intend to take the established idea of fan power and blow it through the sky. Read all about the ideas and plans for Marillion's new upcoming studio album. And if you click that link, uh, there's a very long discussion about uh, the lack of marketing input from the label and how the audience are the best marketers and how we really need you to do this and, and on and on and on. So this worked pretty well for a while. And then they were like, oh, you know what? We have enough money. We can put out the next album ourselves. We shouldn't go ask the audience for money when we can afford to do it. That's tacky. That's like uh, you borrow $20 from a friend, and then you go back the next week, and you go, hey, can I have another $20? How about 20 more? Can I have 20 more dollars? Um, so they decided not to fan fund the album. And what happened was that the audience was really pissed off because they felt they'd been cut out of the process. And all those previous albums, the band had been accountable to them. They had to tell them how it was going. They had to bring them in and let them participate in the process. 
And as a result, they didn't like the album as much, and they didn't engage with it as much. And they went back to fan funding afterwards, not because they needed the money, but because the audience needed the engagement, and they had come to expect that in their relationship. And to this day, they remain fan funded. And they occasionally tour North America, sometimes even playing Boston. Um, okay, and then my final example is Kristen Hirsch and Throwing Muses. Um, more fabulous fan art. So sh this is somebody who really, really, really values the connection with the audience, for whom being on stage and feeling that moment of connection is everything. It's, uh, for lack of a better word, my religion, is how she talks about it. Um, she was signed to a major label. They did pretty well. If you were around in the 80s, you remember Throwing Muses being on the radio and being sort of college radio darlings. They were on cool labels in both the UK and the US. Um, but she felt really cut off from her audience. So um, the question kind of became, where are they? How can I find them again? We'd go to, we, I'm speaking as her now, we'd go do the record signings and it was the only time I ever got to actually see them. And all the rest of the time people were rushing me off stage and taking me away from them and I needed them, right? They were the circuit that made it all whole. Um, and they found them in AOL, in a folder where the fans were hanging out. Were you there? Were you on AOL? Yeah. She works with Kristen on her website. So. Um, and the fan group was called Throwing Music. Good play on Throwing Muses. So what happened at that point was that their manager said, awesome, I found them. Here they are. And he joins the group, and he becomes part of it. And he does it very respectfully. Right? You guys are here. What do you want to know? How can I help? Let's get to know each other. This is awesome. Um, and he was a fairly visionary character in many ways. And one of the things that he saw really early was that being on AOL was a problem because AOL might not last forever. And if their fans were on AOL, that might all turn out to be a problem. And what they did, which I think was just incredibly uh, visionary, is that they talked with the people in this group about this problem and said, OK, we want to make our own site so that you know, we can make sure that you're sustained. And everyone's like, yeah, that's cool. I don't know, maybe a few people argued. But they went over, and they called it throwingmusic.com. So they actually took the name of the fan group as the official site. This is a screenshot from 96. Um, this, the page actually began in 94. Uh, you could do direct ordering of music. Uh, if you are looking for information about Throwing Music, Kristen Hirsch, you've come to the right place. It's your official online source for news information and multimedia materials. Uh, and you could register and get all the stuff. But what you could also do if you scroll down, and I think this is what's especially interesting, is you could chat with other Throwing Muses and Kristen Hirsch fans in the real-time chat room. Right? So from the very start, here you have an artist going, oh. You guys are talking. If you're coming with us, you've you got to keep having your conversation. That's part of the deal. A few years later, and we're still in the 90s here, this is what the site looked like. This is a screenshot from 1998. Um, and here, what I want to mention is this, this link called The Place. And if you clicked on The Place, you got over here, our own little online community for fans, you, where you could make your own home page, exchange messages with other fans, and more. So you had basically MySpace for Kristen Hirsch fans 
four years before you had MySpace. And then MySpace comes along, right? And if we think about, well, what was MySpace? Why did MySpace take <laughs> off the way it did? It was not the first social network. There had been other social networks before MySpace, Black Planet. Um, there, were, there were quite a few of them. Uh, but MySpace really, really took off. And it's highly likely that one of the reasons it did is that it very strategically seeded itself with musicians in Los Angeles, which is where it was based. So it hooked into that musician audience relationship and said, people are looking for music. People want to know when the gigs are. People are putting flyers all around town. What if we got everybody doing that on MySpace? And it worked really well. And, ever, and when you talk to musicians uh, who had audiences before MySpace and who lived through this transition, they will tell you all of a sudden people started contacting us. We'd never heard from anybody before. And suddenly, we were constantly hearing from fans. They, they, people who would never have written us an email didn't think anything about sending us a message through MySpace. So the floodgates really, really open. Um, and this direct, this expectation is really there. So when social media happened, if you think about it from the fans' perspective, there's already an expectation of connectivity, of voice, of productivity. And when the musicians now show up and they're like, I'm going to create a page and we're going to be friends, they're just hooking into what's already been going on. They're hooking into fan culture rather than fans hooking into celebrity culture. I don't have a lot of time, but just really briefly, I, before opening up to questions, I want to, um, this is a whole chapter in its own right. And so I'm just going to really quickly say that Social media platforms do change the dynamics a lot because of the ways that they foster this kind of direct interaction. They also um, have ultimately, I think, proved quite damaging to a lot of those fan communities that relied on fan labor to maintain a website because people just don't go to websites the way they used to for those forums. Um, there are still many that are quite successful. Um, but social media platforms really change who has access. If you had to buy a ticket to a show, you don't have to buy a ticket to go to their web page and tell them how much they suck, for example. Um, there is this expectation of any, any time of day, right? I'm, I'm David Bowie, and I'm making breakfast, and I can log on to Twitter and tweet with my fans if I want, right? They're always there. They're in your domestic spaces, ever present, ever available for interaction. Um, the power balances shift dramatically so that it happens a lot uh, where somebody who might be a, a popular musician is not a particularly popular person on social media. So suddenly, they're being followed by somebody who's got way more followers than they do. And the, that's actually the super influential person rather than the artist in that context. And even within fan cultures, sometimes fans will be extremely influential um, not necessarily more so than the artists, but um, enough so that if they're doing things over there, that might be where the fans want to hang out rather than over here where the, where the artist is. There's also a lot of ways in which the behaviors that are, have become acceptable between audiences and musicians have evolved because of um, a lack of clear norms about what do we do in this environment where suddenly the artist seems kind of like one of us, right? Which, remember, where music starts, of course the artist is one of us. That's the whole point of music, is that we're all us, right? Um, 
And in many ways, for many of the artists I've talked with, this is really great. This is really validating, because this means that they can get off that rock and roll high horse that they never identified with anyway, and just get back with their people who dig their music and make life together, which was the point. Um, for other people, it's really problematic. Um, and one way in which it's really problematic is that people, um, people behave very hostily, people behave very abusively, uh, but also people behave very entitledly, so that even if they're not being mean to you, they might just want too much from you, right? So musicians tell me about people who, you know, they're, they're, every single thing they do, they write, a, they contact them on every single medium, and they're constantly feeling like this person is on them, and they feel obligated to reply, and they, and they feel obligated to reply sometimes just because they want to be nice, just because they don't want to be a jerk who says no to somebody who likes them and appreciates them. So that gets back to that kind of emotional demand for intimacy and for mundane, everyday connection that, that is called for so much now. Um, and the way that these media take what's really, in a lot of ways, always been there. And I hope you've kind of picked up on that through this. And in a lot of ways, that kind of engagement's always been there, but it now the audience is built this way where it can be there all day, every day, just like that, and the artists kind of have to confront that kind of sociality in a way that they used to be really, really separated from. Um, and the, the end result of that is that you've got sort of two really fundamental tensions that play out uh, in this effort to reach audiences and to play to the crowd, one of which is, on the one hand, you want to control your stuff, right? Prince was an exemplar of that desire for control. I want to make sure that my intellectual property is only used in ways that I have authorized. Uh, my favorite bad Prince story is when his lawyers were suing a group of three fan boards, and among the things that they were suing them for was posting unauthorized uh, images of Prince that included photographs of people's tattoos where they'd had his face tattooed on their own body. And he was claiming those were unauthorized images. So. Um, that's control, right? In fairness, Prince was also known, like I said, for dialing into bulletin boards, for hosting parties at his house where all the fans could come in and dance to his new album. I mean, he, was, he, was, he loved his fans, and he was there for them. But he was also very tight about control. And on the other hand, you have this yearning for participation, where you end up with, oh, I didn't mention the other part about throwing music, which is that you could subscribe. And if you subscribed, you got an MP3 a month, and that now for 20, 20 years, that is how she's funded her career, is through fan subscriptions. So when we talk about, ooh, kicks, ooh, Amanda Palmer got so much money on Kickstarter. Yeah, she did, and more power to her, but Kristen Hirsch did it like two decades earlier and has been doing it consistently ever since. So praise where it's due, right? Um, and she did it by fostering participation, right? By recognizing the value of participation. And by, I would say, rather than control, I would say what she has done is more like stewardship of sort of these people <coughs> have organized around me, and um, I need them. And the world is precarious, and technology companies can't be trusted. So let's make sure that we do this right together so that we all are getting what we need. So there is an element of control, inevitably, but participation is really in the fore there. 
And then you have this real tension that I haven't talked about as much, but I could give another talk about that next week if you're interested, between um, trying to keep your professional distance um, and that desire for those mundane details of everyday life which clash in all kinds of interesting and fun ways that lead people to do things like talk about golf because it's the real me, but you don't have to actually learn anything about me. So on that note, I will stop and be happy to take questions or yell at me or whatever. And don't forget to get a sticker before you leave. Do you feel more relaxed now, all you stressed out thesis buddies? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And yet the community seems to just self-sustain and um, in a lot of ways some of these opera companies play into this in terms of their promotion, but you don't see it, you just don't see it in the same way. Yeah, and yeah. And jazz, I'm thinking about how much of that fandom was sustained through like downbeat magazine letters and um, before we had jazz festivals happening, you know, you had these groups like in magazines Yeah, um, so it's a great question, and I'm gonna um, thank you. I'm gonna cheat and say what I say in the book, which is that um, my the reason I talk about the music that I talk about, which is not entirely all rock and pop. There are some people from some other genres, but. Um, and I have to say that I didn't, EDM actually was the genre where people seemed to be the most different in the attitudes toward audiences from the other genres I spoke with. But my, my take on this is that this is an interview-based project, which means I had to get people to let me interview them. And it turns out to be rather tricky to get professional musicians who had audiences since before MySpace and still do to let you interview them. And I tried really hard to interview people from a huge variety of genres, and snowballing didn't work, and I failed to get to a lot of genres. And then as I thought about it more, I thought, well, okay, so I could say, like people will often say, you ask about opera and jazz, people often ask about hip hop. Well, what about hip hop? Things are yeah, really well, different in hip hop. Right, and of course, of course, in many ways. So then I'd be like, well, yeah, I should really get into hip hop, right? I should, say, I should make sure I talk to some hip hop people, but then, and you'll appreciate this, I'd be like, well, what about Brazil? Brazil's got all kinds of super interesting music cultures. Why don't I talk about that? And then they'd be like, uh, K-pop. 
K-pop's got all kinds of stuff going on. And so then I'm like, well, where do I draw lines? And when I can't talk about everybody. And I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell a story I know really, really well. And I'm going to hope that people like you who know those communities will go, this is really interesting. But it's not quite like that in opera. I'm going to write about what it's like in opera. Right? So what I'm trying to do is just kind of offer a tale that people can take elsewhere. I do think that a lot of the things that fans do are really consistent across different kinds, especially like those kinds of genres, like making sure that you've got the complete collection, making sure you've got the first pressings, making sure you've got all the stuff, having access to, I mean, of course, people don't hang out with Maria Callas anymore, but you know, if you can get a selfie with the person, that's really cool, or if you at least were there, that's really cool. So there are these ways of, of competing with one another and sharing social values and things that, that are the same in their uh, form, if not their content. Yeah, but certainly rock and pop do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like they're, so. They're, they're emulating in some way. They're like pushing into this. Yeah, and I hear people in classical, not necessarily in opera, but I do hear people in classical saying there's more and more pressure for like first violinists to have a web presence. <laughs> uh, so go figure. You know, I wouldn't have thought that, but you are starting to see. You are starting to see that in genres that haven't always privileged it. Rika. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair criticism, and it's a criticism that. Because when you're sorry, so when you say music, without qualifying it, it's there's something about it that's. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's totally fair. And in the book, I, I try to address this by saying, you know, I'm telling this one story, and. I think the line that I use is, "Please interpret its absences as invitations," because I they're there. That's a fact. There's no question about it. The book is. 80,000 words. It could have been 160,000 words. And I could have gone into hip hop, and I could have gone into all those things, and I could have gone in all those directions, and that's all true. I, there are parts of tales that I do tell in the book that I think are not in this talk that speak to some of that. But yeah, it's true. I'm not telling a story about. Um, black music cultures in the United States. I also feel 
like if I got up here. Music culture in the United States is not, black music culture is not separate from music culture. That's absolutely, no, yeah, you're right. And I, and I don't mean to say, it, no, you're right. And I do, I mean, that's, that point is in there. And it's a fair criticism. And I tried really hard to talk to a lot of people who were involved in a lot of those scenes. And nobody wrote me. I was, you know, in, so, you know, it's, I tried. That's all I can really say is I tried. And having failed, I thought it was a little facetious to then go, well, I'll just go read a bunch of stuff and write about it like I'm part of that scene and I know it really well. And to me, that felt as weird, you know, to talk about the ethics of dealing with, 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 with multicultural, multiple histories and trying to weave it into one story. I felt like ultimately it was a little um, disingenuous for me to claim expertise and stuff that I know other people know so, so well, rather than telling a story that I could tell really well and hoping that it might encourage some of those people to say, you totally missed this. And that's what, you know, in Bain's book, she completely ignores this. Here's my book to fill that gap. And I want those books. I want that whole collection of gaps, because I would have loved to have been able to follow these things through. So they're not there because I don't acknowledge them or because I don't know they were there. They're, because they're not there because I didn't know how to get to them in a way that could do them justice, rather than treating them as, OK, well, I'm totally white, but I'm going to paint a little dark around the corner so that it looks multicultural, which seems insulting to me. So it was hard. And I talked to a lot of people about it. I talked to race scholars about how do I do this in a way that can simultaneously acknowledge that it does come out of my history. And this chapter, in the way that I tell it, is really autoethnographic. It's not in the version I just gave you, but in the version I tell in the book it is. And how do I tell it in a way that, that can simultaneously acknowledge, yeah, it's really white. That's because all the musicians I know, I know from growing up in Urbana, Illinois, in a Midwest, in a college town, um, as a white person, in a white scene, and having had tastes that were formed in there and built the networks in there. And that's just where I landed. So it's really just about telling the story that I felt I could tell fairly. So yes, you're right, and I don't disagree. Other, yeah. Um, what I found really striking was obviously predating the internet, there were these international connections among fans. But I don't know if you saw in your research that that changed at all. I mean, the, the fact that you had somebody in Olympia, Washington, you know, who was the the authority on Scandinavian music, um, or you know, the, the fact that a lot of what I listen to is produced in the US, you know, and, and I've been able to find that because of the internet and because of these fan cultures. And that's, you know, a lot of my most important friendships are exactly were forged in these chat rooms on foreign musicians' websites. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, has that has that changed because of the internet? Has the internet sort of enabled something that was already there? Um, yeah, the internet has especially for artists who are, didn't have multinational label record deals, the internet has undoubtedly allowed international music flows that were not there previously. So for example, um, I spoke to a Spanish musician from Spain who suddenly has, is touring South America and Mexico um, because they know he exists, <coughs> which they didn't before. Um, <coughs> a lot of Western bands touring Asia who don't sell there, but 
have huge audiences there. So yeah, a lot of cultural flows around, not just music. I mean, also if you think about the whole fan subbing of American TV and other television, there's a lot of international media flows that, that have happened because of the internet. Usually happening first because fans are distributing it in ways that are perhaps considered unauthorized. Right? And often doing a lot of work to translate materials also and build the structures and, and pay for their maintenance. Yeah, was there something over here? Yeah, yes, all. So I'm an old guy and I'm a deadhead. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, but I'm, I'm not so much interested in the history. I'm curious what you think about the future because it's um, one of the things that seems to be emerging is sort of a fandom of abundance and not scarcity. You know, I'm thinking about Deadhead when you had to lug 50 pounds of equipment to tape a concert. Um, now, every you know, Deadhead company, which is an incarnation of Christian Dead concert, is live webcast. If you don't want to pay for it, they're the pirate streams. They're the people who are periscoping um, every concert. And the tapers are all live streaming over Mixler. Um, so there's, you know, suddenly, you, know, you don't have to wait for them to come to town to see them. You can actually see them better um, from your own living room. And there's a term for it. It's called the couch tour. Um, and there are communities that have gathered about this, either through Twitter hashtags or Reddit live threads. And I, I participate, but it's like, what's happening here? Um, did you, I mean, were you just looking back or have you looked forward? And what, what do you think is going to emerge from um, in this section, I'm looking back. In terms of what I think is going to emerge from it, I think, I think abundance is an issue, but I think that as abundance has become an issue, that, that thing that Carrie was talking about, about you know the, the limited edition, hand-sewn, whatever, also becomes more and more important. So there is a, um, a desire for scarcity. I think what kind of concerns me a little bit about all of the abundance is the ways that it undermines the uh, social currency amongst fans. And I feel very torn about it in the sense that when you were a deadhead in 1978 and you got a tape, it was like, yes, I worked for this tape, right? And when you're a deadhead now, you're like, oh, which of 87 streams should I watch? Yeah, right? And somebody who just found out about the dead yesterday can find them just as easily as you, right? So the thing that made you cool in 78, because you got that tape, now there's nothing special about it. Because even if you're periscoping live, so are 80 people around you, right? So I kind of worry about what happens to fan culture in an era of ubiquity, where everybody's got everything, and there's nothing to sort of work for anymore, but um, I don't, I feel like it's really double-sided because on the one hand, it's fantastic that you can see the dead on your couch, right? That's great. And I don't think it really means that when they come to town, you wouldn't go, right? So I, I think that it's in much the way that I don't really think that online communication has supplanted face-to-face -face communication, I don't really think that online music engagement is going to supplant the 
concert experience or, or the dancing collectively experience, which, you know, is totally different from sitting on your couch. You know, you can't have, you can have a dance party on your couch, but you don't get the pleasure of a dance party. There are the people who point their cell phones at their TV and, you know, and do that way to pirate the screen and then during set break have their own dance party, which you can watch, but it's not the same. The possibilities are endless. Yeah. So uh, I think just this last one. Okay. Just need to. Oh, sorry. So during the presentation, I was really struck when you talked about the uh, sort of fan, like master of the site being brought on to do all of the web promotion for, I think. Warner Brothers. For Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Um, so I was wondering in your research, did you see kind of this crossing between, let's say, corporate, I want to say co opting, but I'm going to use it like co opting of fan networks, but also at the same time, did you see a, uh, sort of examples of fans kind of going back the other way, not necessarily stepping into the industry as creators, but just as participants in that, kind of seeing like whether those professionalization paths? Yes. But what I ultimately came away from this project thinking is that the category of fan and musician is really super problematic because I don't know any musician who isn't a fan and I don't know, I have yet to meet people in the music industry who aren't fans, that's why they're in the music industry, right? It's, it's, so, and, and I have spoken with musicians who are pretty famous who talk about geeking out when some, one of my favorite things that I'll see on Twitter from time to time will be like, um, some musician I admire says something and then some musician they admire replies and then they're like, oh my God, I can't believe someone's responded to me. This is the best day of my life, right? And you see that all the time. If you, if you follow uh, celebrities of any kind, you see that there's this constant being excited by somebody of whom you're a fan. So I think that we need to think about fan and artist as sort of fluid categories that people inhabit at different times of life and day, depending on, on what they're doing relative to the people around them, rather than as sort of identity categories that you can never really get out of. I think, I mean, yeah, I think pretty much everybody in, in professional music was a fan who wanted to get in in some way in, in industry. Cases like the Ethan Kaplan case, um, I think are less common, but certainly not unheard of. I mean, that's a, that's a really striking case. But it's, it's, it happens all the time where people will hire their fan to run their web presence through money or friendship and love and, and things like that. So that happens a lot where they go, you know, you're doing this so well, why don't we, you just do it for us? But the sort of like, we, the industry, the giant company will take you and give you this plum of a job is less common, but not, not extraordinary. Thank you, everybody. Discussion informally over reception. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank you.